What's great conversation you're about to hear? Hello, everyone. This is W, host of the High Art on the Edge page. I'm an online event planner that supports artists' work from all over the world. They create the product. I help them plan and execute a memorable event for their fans, family members, and friends. What do Chick Webb, Philip Glass, and Tony Braxton all have in common? They hail from the great state of Maryland. But how can we leave off the indie darlings, Velocity Girl? You remember these titans of guitar pop musicians who composed addictive tunes such as My Forgotten Favorite, Crazy Town, and Sorry Again? Well, they are back with high-voltage enthusiasm. They just wrapped up a super memorable show at the Black Cat 30th anniversary event on September 9th. In this conversation, we're going to explore some questions such as, how did this band come together? What kind of musical training did they have whilst climbing the music ladder? How did their experience with legendary producer John Porter go making the Sapotico album? What was it like being on stage again in front of a lively and captive audience? And how does it feel to dust off some analog tapes only to be released later back out into the world on Bandcamp? Let's not forget they have some vinyl picks to share with you all. Clearly, they still hold plenty of appeal in the music world, including me. So enjoy my conversation with Velocity Girl. Hello, everyone. This is W.A.K. William, host of the High Art on the Edge public event page. Thank you for tuning in. This is a wonderful surprise event that I've been eager to share with you. And now has arrived. I have retrace some steps and connected to some music from the past that I have fully embraced. And that is with a band called Velocity Girl. The last time I saw them was in San Francisco many moons ago. And we are so fortunate to have them part of this conversation. Jim Spellman, Archie Moore, Sarah Shannon, thank you so much for being part of this high art on the edge experience. How are you all doing? Great. Doing good. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Absolutely. So in this conversation, I'm going to kind of start, we'll we'll kind of trace or retrace our steps going back to the beginning of of Velocity Girl. And then we'll talk about some albums that you have released. And then of course, this this latest and greatest show that you put on and any, any future shows. And then we'll wrap it up with some vinyl picks and then we'll be done. So, Jim, I want to start with you. I'm going to throw you, I like to throw some, you know, softball questions, hardball, curveball. But here's a question for you Velocity Girl, what do you think people think of when they hear those two words? What comes to their mind? Well, you know, I hope that, that they, they think of our band and I hope that they, you know, feel that we were able to kind of connect a lot of basses, melody, the sort of sonic stuff, noise, reverb and stuff, as well as, you know, kind of some energetic kind of songs that people like. But, you know, I don't know. It's been fascinating since we've been somewhat active again the last few months. People seem to connect with the band in lots of ways that I sort of don't anticipate them doing. So I kind of leave it up to them more than 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 us. Archie, would you like to elaborate on that? 
Oh, yeah. And to what Jim said in the end there, that's been really shocking to me. Like, I, I've always been sort of in the band, the band jerk or, you know, the bossy guy in the band and, and, and our, our, our worst critic. Like, I don't know if you ever watched Adventure Time, but, uh, Jake the dog I, on one episode was in a band and he said, every band needs an asshole, I think. And, and I, I was like, I was like Leonardo Di- DiCaprio pointing at the TV going, yes, that's it. But with that context, the show we did last week, we did a reunion show in DC last week. And afterwards, I was, I think we were all incredibly moved by the response because it's, you know, it's obviously it's a nostalgia fest, but I think we were kind of confronted with this fact that like our music meant something to, to a lot of people. Like they, they, you know, people were telling me I've been wanting to see you since high school or something like that. So it was, it was a big deal for us. And it kind of has recalibrated my idea of what the band meant, like in, in a very nice way. And we will definitely discuss that show and all the good vibes and sentiments that came with it. Sarah, let's go to you. What do you think? What do you think of when you hear those two words, philosophy girl? I'll do combo, Jim and Archie. I mean, the mechanics of what we what we do, you know, noise and melody. And yeah, what Archie said and Jim brought up somewhat too, what the surprise of 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 how we connected to people's I'm going to, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go for a big word. We connected to people's hearts (laughs) and yeah, like it meant something to somebody and you remember, you know, you remember those bands that, you know, gave you the chills or made you want to move your body or made you want to pick up an instrument. And so being able to reconnect with people on that level has been amazing. And you just, I don't, yeah. Having all those people show up at the black cat mm-hmm. and kind of carry us along, you know, I felt like they were, they were with us and it felt really good. And so, <laughs> yeah, whatever velocity girl means, we, we connected it there in that moment at the black cat. I cannot wait to get into that discussion. Jim, give us a little bit of the background, the history of Velocity Girl, if you don't mind. I'll let, I'll let Archie do that, if you don't mind, because Archie was in the band originally, and myself and Sarah came came in just a little bit later. Go for it, Archie. Sure. Velocity Girl basically came out of a band called Goddard Democrats, Goddard Democrats, which was Kelly uh, Riles, who's now Kelly Young, and I, and our buddy Bernie Grindle at the time who lived in a house with me. And initially we were just kind of messed. Like, are we allowed? What's the language situation with the uh, podcast? Like uh, I'm a, I'm a curse or, but if this is like for. (laughs) Oh, oh, you can, you can speak your mind, express yourself however you like. We just fucked around initially (laughs) as, as like a, as a noise. Like we really did not know what we were doing. We, none of us, played instruments or anything like that so we were one of those bands that was just banging on stuff for a while and we invited my friend bridget to join the band at some point i think it was shortly after we had all seen my bloody valentine come through the 930 club in 19 
89, like summer of 1989, because we were all completely obsessed with the you made me realize and isn't anything and like the the stuff that was out then and the previous stuff as well and seeing them live just sort of galvanized us to change from this kind of dumb noise rock into something maybe a little with some tunes and more of a textured sound so we changed the name and yeah bridget played second bass as well as started singing some songs and after a little while of that the we had kind of melodies going on and then i saw jim here and i didn't really know him but i saw him in the line at the food co-op at the university of maryland on the student union and he just came up to me and we had put out a a compilation record at that time on on a record a record label we started called slumberland records and it was just a three-inch compilation it was recorded in our basement one song recorded on a boom box the other two on my cassette four track and Jim came up to me in line and said, Hey dude, I like your record. And, and he kind of offered to sit in with us and play drums. And so we had him over and this kind of coincided. I think this, I mean, in my mind, maybe Jim, correct me if I'm wrong, but like we had just started working on a song called, I don't care if you go, which we were kind of excited about. And from the first time Jim played with us, we just, you know, we, we kind of sounded like a band and everything where we had a real backbeat and cymbals and stuff that we hadn't had before. We'd just been banging on drums and that, that, that was instantly our kind of five person lineup and an, ex an excuse for us to start booking shows at the local clubs and things like that. And Jim was, Jim's always been sort of the. I believe Sarah referred to it recently as the band daddy. If I was the band asshole, Jim was the guy who, <laughs> That's right. Jim got us shows early. Like he 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 pushed us to like go do shows. And I think most important that was very important, but most importantly, he got our asses into a studio. And there was this guy, Barrett Jones, who's like he we we went there because he had done like Pussy Galore early record there or something. But we went there and recorded four songs and i was kind of hooked at that point to the the recording thing i still didn't understand it at all like i was like why do we need eight tracks like we have there's drums there's two people on guitar there's bass what like, one vocal what do you need like what do you need all that stuff for but yeah oh uh, let me uh chime in if you don't mind so i in 1985 i saw the in 1985, I saw Jesus and Mary Chain at the University of Maryland in that same building. And and Psycho Candy was like this huge record for me, but it was like nowhere present in music in Washington, D.C. that I was like aware of. And and there were lots of other bands as well, but that was really to me a sort of like a, this real archetype that I was drawn to. Pop songs, but all this kind of chaos and, and, and noise and distortion stuff. And so I was, and I was in high school then when I saw that, but then as I started playing in bands, totally surrounded by DC punk rock, hardcore music. And that's my friends in bands played and stuff that was offshoots of that. And there was all this amazing stuff happening, Fugazi, especially in, in the, in the time when Gloucester was coming together. But like, I knew in my heart that playing that kind of music was just not for me. And then I saw, I saw, I I saw Velocity Girl, not God or Democrats, Velocity Girl at the student union at some sort of some sort of goofy show there, right? Archie, something, something like that. 
And I was like, it, it really, it really hit me, even though it was very, you know, primitive and all of that. And then I got the record immediately. And I'm still to this day completely impressed when anyone puts out a record. Like it seems like a miracle, you know, but that really seemed like a miracle. And you know, I don't remember that I had any big like, you know, ambition, but I was not a drummer until like a couple of weeks before I played in the basement. I mean, I screwed around living in houses with drummers, but I'm like a guitar player and I was playing guitar in another band at the same time, but it really seemed like this golden opportunity to weasel my way in to this thing, you know, and, 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 you know, nobody else was doing that. Like there were, there was no room for another bass player. Like, I think that was clear. I already too. that. <laughs> I can't sing. So like, this seemed like good, you know, opportunity. And I remember that first night in that uh, ba- uh, playing in the basement very well. And it seemed really easy. Like it seemed really easy. I think we played a show two weeks later or something like that, TC space. And that part of it never really seemed hard. Then from then on making music with Arch and with Kelly, and then you know, there was this transition and Bridget left and Bernie went on to grad school and Sarah came in and that was the band. Bridget. Well, to, and then Brian came and after Brian. Sarah. Sorry. Yeah. Brian. We always forget Brian. He's, He's so quiet. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah, I want to ask you this question. Tell us, tell tell us about your, your experience growing up with music. Was that something that was always immersed in your household? How did you become such a appreciator of music and was that passed down yes so i've come from a pretty artsy fartsy family Uh, my father is a visual artist my mother is a singer and she she went to college when i was about 12 so like in her late 20s early 30s and she was a dj at gw so just my dad and my stepmom, yeah, it was, they had a record player and we had the Beatles and Bowie, and Ella Fitzgerald and, you know, all the, all the good stuff for your ears. And then my mom was more into kind of, you know, new wave, Blondie, Cheap Trick, my first concert. This is this is a good. I have a good bragging rights here. My mom took me to see Blondie at at Meriwether Post Pavilion when I was twelve, and we went to the hotel afterwards. That's the kind of mom <laughs> she was. And I remember, yeah, we were waiting at the hotel. I don't know how she got that, that information. I don't know if she was working at the radio station at the time, but we were waiting for them and they just sort of breezed up in their suits and, you know, looking a little, a little hazy. (laughs) Just, I remember one of them had a a wine bottle in his jacket. (laughs) Yeah. So I was, I was steeped in it. I was, you know, was playing in my house and I was, my mom was taking me to see concerts from a young age. So when did you start noticing being become more aware of your actual vocal talent? That was a very clear day. I always just sort of sang along in the house. And I I don't I didn't understand if I had a voice or not. I, I knew I felt like I could sing along with the melodies as they were written. But uh, I tried out for a play in 
in sixth grade, and I sang a song from Brigadoon, <laughs> and it was a little bit of a like bunny rabbits turning their head. You know, all of a sudden people were like, ooh. And I, I kind of was like, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and I kind of found it out in a very <laughs> weirdly public way, trying out for that play. I got the lead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so th- from that, from that kind of moment, that was the impetus, that was the catalyst? Yeah. And then from then on, I was like, well, I can sing. People seem to like it. I love doing it. Feels really good. And then from then on, it was, you know, I start, I was in choirs. I was in plays. You have opera training? Yeah. And then choirs. And then through my high school choir teacher, I was in regular choir and show choir. That was a big deal. And my show choir teacher you know, asked me if she said, have you ever had any training? And I said no. And she recommended a teacher whose bass happened to be in an opera. And my choir teacher just said, this, it doesn't matter where you want to go with your voice. If you, if you get a, a basic training in opera, you know, you'll have a really good foundation. So I studied opera in high school and then through college. Okay. And you must have enjoyed that experience. I loved it. It was hard. I mean, they were, it was, I had to take music theory classes. I wasn't great at school. Music theory felt a little like math to me. <laughs> and I didn't really do good in music theory until, until all the rules were thrown out the door. And we did the last semester was atonal music, which is really weird because I'm a pretty melodic person. But that was the only class I got an A in. Hey, that's okay. Yeah. I, I've been, I've, I, as I mentioned before, the teacher for 23 years. And, you know, I used, used to tell this to my elementary school students, as cliched as it is, people just find their voices at all different parts of their life. And it's, it's a shame that school can kind of pigeonhole and lock kids in it and don't let them just be who they need to be and, and kind of express themselves. And it sounds like you had an upbringing that allowed this and really nurtured this. Yeah. But like I said, it was that thing of just saturation, you know, music was playing constantly. And then, yeah, my mom kind of brought in the, the more hipster element and college radio aspect. And yeah. So Archie, do you remember we met way before we were introduced as me as a potential lead singer. Do you remember we met, met in the record store? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, that I'm sure that's part of why we would have, you would have gone to the front of the list when, you know, when Jim suggested you. Like, uh, Yeah. So we, I actually met Jim through, a, I didn't know Jim through, through University of Maryland. I met him through a friend at AU. And so I think that I kind of, I knew, I knew there was this kid that came into the record store and I don't know how, like, maybe you made the connection. Oh, yeah, Sarah used to work at the, at the co-op. Mm-hmm. But that was like before. Well, I joined co-ops the band, right? one, by the way, food co-op and record co-op. Record That's co-op, right. right. <laughs> Two co-ops. Both very important in the history of Velocity Girl, apparently. So. <laughs> apparently, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Archie, what about you and your training? When did, uh, when did you start really gravitating towards music? 
I, I was a, a kiss fanatic at 10. And then I kind of did the, I mean, hard rock radio was, was kind of what people in my suburban existence listened to, you know, young boys and stuff listened to. So I went from kiss to Van Halen and rush for a while. And then in high school, I liked some David Bowie stuff. And my mom got my sisters and I tickets to see David Bowie in 1982. And it's wow. like overnight, I became like a Bowie obsessive as well as like a new waiver because the, the hard rock station in DC, w, uh, DC 101 would also sneak in like New Year's Day and Sunday, Sunday, Bloody Sunday, or the, I, I loved the first few in excess singles that from their Shabu Shaba, their first the first album available over here, the one thing and don't change and stuff. And that stuff just kind of lift my lid. And then, so I, I, but because, well, the reason I mentioned that transition is because I went from liking music that was unrelatable to me that I could never imagine making, or, you know, something that existed in a different world that was unattainable. And I sort of got the impression with like U2 and In Excess and stuff like that, that this stuff sounds like I could probably possibly figure it out. And then by the time I was in 10th or 11th grade, I see you're wearing a Bunnyman shirt, like the Bunnyman <laughs> and New Order and The Cure and then The Smiths. I mean, that's still to me, I, I mean, some of it I I really do believe is probably hormonal or whatever. It's just the the age you're at. But that's the music that has stuck with me the most for my entire life and that I still like i it just sounds like music that is right like all in capital letters or something and then went to college and uh, fell in with college radio and then discovered a different kind of music that was completely right like indie pop and the kind of proto shoes shoegaze stuff like arcane and stuff like that and then of course the my bloody val you know the, the the fizzy pop of this post post psycho candy stuff jim was talking about psycho candy there's a whole bunch of scottish and uk bands that kind of were inspired by that and made this super fuzz pedal cranked up pop song music and i was obsessed with that and from there also heard beat happening and i'm almost done with this story but like mm -hmm. beat happening was the final thing where it's i heard their early records and went and saw them play 1988 and it, like literally that night my friend mike and we went and we much to his neighbor's chagrin we played music like at 1 a.m or whatever like that was pretty much the first time i was attempting to make original music at all jim did you have any formal training did you not not at drums no i took guitar in high school public high school guitar and guitar one and guitar two in ninth and tenth grade and that was pretty good. We learned like the same cowboy chords. I write all the songs I write now with still. <laughs> and it was good. Her teacher was great. Joan Racky was her name. I'm still in touch with her. Nice. Uh, and it's very similar to, to Arch. Kiss was the first thing. Right around the same time as I got into Kiss, I bought off of from TV. I phoned in and ordered this Beach Boys best of thing on a track. And, but then it was like, you know, like Arch said, Van Halen, and I, I was more into metal, Scorpions and Iron Maiden, Wabam, the way of a British metal, Saxon, a bunch of stuff like that, which really seemed like the most kind of high energy, you know, kind of exciting sounding stuff to me. And then 
I then it was the I got so a friend of mine played me the Ramones and that totally blew it open. And then it was like this complete immersion. That was when I was in ninth grade into figuring all that stuff out, you know, pre-internet, going to a record store, asking, you know, trying to follow all these leads and, you know, going down a few wrong paths. But we were fortunate to have a, a lot of good record stores, several good record stores in D.C., and I, I would go to this, I would go to one that was sort of close and I would take a couple buses to this record store where Arch and I ended up working called yesterday and today and worked my way through like the Ramones, the Sex Pistols, the Damned, Wire, Buzzcocks. And then, then a lot of the American stuff that was happening, hardcore minor threat and stuff like that, but especially like X and the replacements and Husker Du, the kind of american kind of parallel thing that was going on until and it probably took me a year to catch up i guess you know to kind of the current by 84 i bought the replacements let it be one of my favorite records when it came out and and was buying smith's records when they were coming out i saw the smiths in 85 was a huge show and you know all that stuff kind of fused together i would say probably as well in the in the in the late 80s and into early 90s with like oldies radio because there was there was the hard rock station there was black music stations go go and dc and then there was this alternative station which really didn't become kind of bigger and easier to hear until later but the oldie there were a couple oldie stations and stuff like tommy Rowe and and tommy james the Shondells and you know Motown and especially like the Jackson Five and all that stuff was like amazing stuff to listen to, you know, which probably started a lot for me because I didn't have something to listen to in the car. I didn't have the cassette I wanted or whatever. I listened to that stuff, and I think a lot of that stuff really seeped in to form kind of a a version of music education. By the time ended up, you know, kind of playing in a band. Okay, so. We're going to move quickly into some of the previous albums. You know, we, wherever we want to go with this is totally fine. We could talk about Copacetic, we could talk about Simpatico, but I want to open that up to any of you right now. Looking back and hearing those albums, what comes to mind? I want to make a correction. I realize I said my mom was a DJ at GW. It was George Mason. Wrong, George. God, it's, okay. it's a minor, it's a minor one. But if my mom listens, she'll be mad at me. <laughs> no, well, you, you know, when I think of the going back through the records, I I haven't particularly reappraised or or thought much still about the last two records. But we've been in the middle of this big project, digging up old tapes and stuff, and the Copacetic album, and then there's really like an album's worth of material before that, more or less. And those two phases, I've really reassessed a lot in the last couple of months where I'd either not thought about them or there's aspects of them I, I knew. I kind of had put them in this slot in my brain. I don't really like that. And I've come back to really appreciate the kind of energy in them, the adventurous you know, nature of, of the sounds and stuff that we got. And... And also, I feel now like I can acknowledge how hard we worked in those couple of years, like an insane amount of of work, of songwriting, of playing show, of going into the studio in this anytime we we could kind of this rolling thing, you know, doing all in really just a couple of years, 
what, three years time, two years time, this incredible amount of work. And as I sit here right now, I'm really proud of all of that stuff in, in a way that I don't think I was open till, to until these last few months. It's been a great experience. Were there any particular tracks, Archie, Sarah, or, or Jim, whoever wants to answer this? Let's go to Simpatico. That was on Sub Pop. Is that correct? Simpatico? All, yes. of our, all of our LPs were on Sub Pop. Yeah. Okay. So were there any tracks on Simpatico that just were very challenging in composition, the arrangements? Was, were things just not kind of coming through? Or was that album, things were flowing, things were just kind of manifesting themselves in a natural way? Can you give us a little bit of that experience? I'll jump on that one if you want. I think I'm, I'm curious if everybody else agrees, but I remember, I think our, I think our headspace at the time, at least mine was, was we, this was our second record. We, yes, with John Porter from the Smiths, which was <laughs> a, a huge deal. And we had, we had done our first record and we did it really quickly. And I think we were all proud of it. Like that was a record that, you know, your first album uh, typically in the history of a rock band you might have several years to accumulate your best songs and you release them as an album. And I think we were proud of the batch of songs that we had on our first record, but we like it, I think it to all of us, maybe it just didn't feel like we thought it was going to like, it didn't end up being the record that we thought that maybe we had imagined or anything like that, mostly for Sonic reasons. But when we started doing Cope Simpatico, my memory of it is that like we were, we were really focused and we were kind of, we had figured some things out, although when we got into the studio with John Porter, we were about to figure out a whole lot of stuff. Like <laughs> we were, we would literally be cutting minutes out of our composite, you know, we'd be cutting minutes worth of sections out of our two long arrangements, which sound hilarious to me when I listen to Copacetic now, where it's like, why did we just keep doing that thing? Oh, why did we do that four times without any words or anything the whole time? So I, I remember it being like, all of us were kind of just throwing parts and songs out and everything was really cool. Like I remember, I still remember like when we were coming up with like the intros to sorry again, and I can't stop smiling. And it's like, we we've kind of figured out a thing. And I mean, I hear that now retrospectively on copacetic that I, I didn't believe this about myself at the time, but in, in retrospect, I really believe that we had a point of view and a perspective that was different than just about any band like in it's certainly in the u.s i mean we were very anglo-centric kind of but um, we did with that though we were an anglo-centric band who had grown up in discord land and i think that that just like seeps into you somehow so that like we have there's a certain not that we necessarily achieve this but there's a certain challenge to be like on live and stuff like that so that you gotta you gotta have a certain tempo maybe and you got to move when you're on stage and things like that. And so we didn't real like that, that pushed our music out of straight downstroke, 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 shoegaze kind of stuff into its own kind of energy thing. But I remember Simpatico being like, to me, it felt like a triumph of us quickly coming up with a big batch of songs. And I think we even had a leftover song that we had, we had started recording and just a band, like I think John Porter was probably just getting tired of he was like why don't you just do 12 songs or something <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah yeah when, we were, yeah when we were doing that record the uh 
So when Archie's talking about the drum stuff, so about yeah. about editing stuff out of these songs, like when you do this today on Pro Tools or GarageBand or anything like that, you know, it's this long line of colors on the screen and you hit the blade tool and cut it and, you know, but then it was literally this big two inch piece of tape that went this big reel to reel thing and they cut it with a razor blade, like on, on the beat, you know, like, and it's nerve wracking, first nerve wracking as hell to watch them do this ridiculous primitive you know and they tape it back together like it's crazy and, and yeah, yeah and do you yeah, remember and, the, the walls would be covered with yeah. like 15, so you cut 15 out 15 like, bars you know, at a time yeah yeah you cut out the verse from this take and you and you put it on the wall and then you put on this other reel and you get the bridge from this next tape and then you try to line them up in order then reassemble them and so this song our, our song there's only one thing left to say has this kind of shuffle kind of feel and i just could not get it i was i was at my lowest probably ever in a recording studio doing that because like everyone was counting on me and i had this feel and and i couldn't do it and partly in retrospect like i didn't really ever kind of get the feel until it was edited and then i was like oh that's the feel like i, I just couldn't there was this big thing about what it was and I couldn't and I couldn't execute it and that that uh, is 19 pieces of tape that form that, that that formed that song and I have an envelope I actually have this envelope that has a, one of the abandoned pieces of tape and it's I wrote something like open this open this in the time capsule in the future in the year 2020 and <laughs> and I have that but it was I, extremely, the 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 the, the the level that we were holding ourselves to by hiring John Porter to hold us to was a massive leap up ahead from our really kind of sham. I mean, when we recorded this stuff, Arch talked about, we first went in this guy Barrett studio. I didn't even own, I'm not kidding. I didn't own a drum kit. And then there were, uh, there was at least a session or two after that when Bridget left and like, we didn't own a bass or you know, and we like borrowed, like, how can be a band? We don't own a drum kit. We don't own a bass. Like, but we like, there was a lot of charm to that, but this was like, there's no charm. You're going to, you're going to do real music work here. And there, this other thing too, was on our song. I believe it's a, I th believe it's rubble. Rubble have this break that goes dun dun, better bon dun dun, dun dun, dun dun, dun dun. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the intro to this Jimi Hendrix song. I don't live today that I used to play when I was just behind the drums uh, and, and John Porter was like, you know, mate, like that Hendrix bit, hang on a second, play it to this. And he was like, you know, I don't know, click or giving me the the time. And I played it and he recorded it a couple of times and edited that into those, those breaks. Uh, do you remember that? Oh, I that? forgot that. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, on that. It was, it was incredible. I, I think probably there, there was no experience that probably upped my game as how I view all this than working with John Porter. That guy's amazing. Sarah, let's go to you in your, you know, rear view mirror um, mm -hmm. perspective here. That, that, if you want to talk about Simpatico, I'd love to hear your kind of memories of that and working with the band and or John. Well, one of the big jokes in our reconstituting the band is I didn't remember anything. <laughs> and part of that is because I, I, I don't like to listen to my, my voice, <laughs> my recorded voice. So I don't, I don't listen to our stuff except for when we're performing it live. But I do remember, you know, 
making the record and writing the re- record. And I, I remember it seemed to be really percolating and bubbling and going, you know, pretty gangbusters and, and coming together, except for probably a few little skirmishes and disagreements here and there. It was really percolating. And like Jim said, John Porter just brought it all together. And Jim mentioned that, what what was it called? Was it Bo Diddley? The Bo Diddley beat being, being a rough one for you? I I think Kelly and I had a couple times when I don't know if if John ever like walked in <laughs> to the to the room and like showed it to you, but like I remember he was trying to get me to do a probably a, a harmony. I just couldn't get it. He got I so was, it was uh, <laughs> it was mediocre, right? The the, the last line, yeah, just yeah, one, yeah. And he's like, it's this note, <laughs> and he like flunked it on the piano very angrily and it had already happened to maybe i don't remember the i don't remember jim the you're feeling rough about that part but i i know it had happened to kelly with one part but we you know there were some woodshed moments where we were piecing it together and at times coming up short and kind of having to having to really step up to use cliche i have to ask you and i i totally understand it why don't you like listening back to your voice? What is it about that experience? Are you, or do you like sit there and nitpick and go, oh, I should have done this? Yes. It's just, and it's just part of my makeup, extreme self consciousness. Yeah. I, it's just, I, it's, yeah. I have, I have extreme self consciousness aware, but I also have this kind of health, self hating thing where I'll like, <laughs> like I'll, force myself to listen to what I know are my worst perform, you know, like just to remember <laughs> with singing with singing or with guitar. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Particularly with singing. Like, I, I mean, the, the noisy guitar stuff, I've always felt like, well, that that's so easy to fake that I, I feel pretty okay with all of that stuff. Like uh, that's, the, I mean, I think we would all admit that's the easy, that's the uh, plum gig in velocity arrows doing the, the but, but really, I think that in general though, singing your, your voice is obviously such a more personal thing that yeah. also you can have, you can, you can do things differently, but ultimately it is your, it is your voice. There's no knobs or, but you know, like yeah. the, that stuff only goes to a certain point where you're not going to feel the same personal thing about playing. Yeah. Rock, rock drums, yeah, yeah. Unless you're a super expressive, it, like a real musician, also, I think that your voice is the instrument that you're gonna, like, your self confidence and things like that are most exposed. Uh, where, like, you could tell if somebody is too meek to, like, I I hear the like the first couple Slumberland singles, and I sang on the B sides of those, and it's like I I could barely get air out of my mouth or something. You know, mm-hmm. that's really that's a, you know that. So I remember so- I remember Sarah telling me. On some vocal or other, it's like, yeah, you have to open your mouth more when you, when you, you know, you have to open your mouth wider (laughs) when you're saying. And that was something I tried to take to heart. Yeah. Simpatico to me is very reminiscent and forgive me, but it's, it's a high compliment to like bands such as the bats, the clean, the chills, that New Zealand kind of sound. But what's so extraordinary about that album to me, and I don't know if this was the vision of John Porter, all of you collaborating, you, in my personal opinion, 
your ability to write that two to three, three and a half minute, four minute pop song with phenomenal energy, phenomenal hooks, phenomenal melodies. Was that the intention going? Because it seemed that there's a that wall of noise had been removed a little bit and really going for that sharp, like, as I call it, pure pop for perfection. Yeah. Well, can, can I address that one first for a little bit? Yeah. Just because uh, I, I imagine that's hard to do. Yeah, uh, it's it's funny you bring up the flying nun stuff because when I think of Sympat- Sympatico, I remember at the time, and I think this was a general thing in the band. It wasn't just me. I think a lot of us were looking back to like sp- like the Smiths and Echo and the Bunny Man and the Order and thing. But it's very interesting that you picked up on the flying nun thing because th- I mean that that's some of my all time favorite music and. We have a song called The All Consumer on that record where Brian's guitar part, this it's basically block of wood. It, it, it was directly inspired by block of wood where Brian's going, and then I start playing on top of that kind of a, and we weave that together. And that's, that was very bats inspired. And yeah, that's great. Jim. Interestingly, you- I, I didn't know a lot about those bands. I, I like them a lot, but so when I put together my Apple playlist to practice, you know how Apple, I guess if you've got an iTunes account, they'll they'll extend your playlist. Okay. And so those songs, <laughs> those oh, are the songs that are coming up <laughs> in my, that, when I, when I forget, good. when I, yeah, when I turn off, when I just, whatever, forget to turn off the, the, the playlist, that stuff will come up. Jim, is writing an in, indie pop tune Again, my opinion on, on on that album, you know, you you just you name the song. You have Drug Girls, Tripping Wires, you know, I, Rubble, Labrador. Is that is that a very is that a huge arduous task to write such beautiful pop tunes? You know, I don't know. It it seems like it seems like there's always like you know a handful of songs that turn out pretty well that are easy that that you don't struggle with. And then there's a few that maybe you kind of apply some, you know, crap to. And then there's always a few that are kind of struggles somehow, you know, that it just can't quite, it takes forever to find the thing or something. But I think that, you know, the like the singles, Sorry Again, and, and I Can't Stop Smiling, I don't recall those being difficult coming together. I think they were kind of a breeze. I think it's a little more of kind of like the album tracks that we struggle with because not struggle with it are a little more work because you want to add some sonic variety, different feels, and that can feel a little like you're on less stable ground than, than, you know, like going for like big hooks. Not that if we didn't have more songs with big hooks, we would we weren't burying like songs like that, but it just feels like a lot of those songs that, you know, people connect with don't, I don't think we're really that difficult for us to put together that's my memory anyway it's a phenomenal batch of tunes and it holds up beautifully today i don't want to rehash all the you know the album stuff but i I, any final thoughts on gilded stars simpatico anything you want to share about the past you know go ahead now's the time and then we're going to move into this new concert experience Uh, i'll just say that gilded stars and zealous hearts I've been really shocked how many people comment kindly about stuff from that on our, on our somewhat new social media accounts that we've just started, you know, a few months ago leading up to this stuff, like shocked. And 
because the general rap is that like that's the least good album and it kind of flopped and all stuff but i don't know a lot of people you know a lot of people seem to really like a lot of the material on it i've been too occupied with other stuff to spend much time thinking about it or or listening to it particularly i know there's a lot of good songs i think that as a band we were less cohesive you know less of a operating as a unit maybe at the time and stuff but but i'm i'm it's very endearing when i hear people that are seem genuinely moved by a song that i've you know that i just thought you know like no one liked it's 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 definitely kind of a little ego boost or something when someone's like seems to really have like a strong connection with a song that that you know maybe i hadn't given that much thought to in a long time is i want to talk about thank you for sharing that i want to talk about this performance this show that you recently did the black cat is 30th celebration yes mm-hmm. yeah. 30th, 30th uh, anniversary so let's go with that uh, question archie you want to take that one how did this come about it's funny i think probably everybody in the band or at least the people that are kind of visible on social media have probably all gotten random requests over the years where people are asking you can you guys consider getting together and i think for the most part for several decades it was the kind of thing where we probably didn't even bother mentioning it just because logistically it was impossible and i don't think we were i mean, maybe we were at this jaded donut hole age or something where it wasn't as appealing but this punk rock person from the dc area i think she's in philadelphia now katie otto con- contacted me about potentially doing a, re- a velocity girl reunion for a, a big a dc kind of punk reunion festival she was putting on and i brought it up to the band just sort of due diligence and right away we realized we couldn't do it because brian's family was going to be in iceland but that sort of got i mean it oddly sort of got a little ball rolling. And at first, it's funny, we we decided Sarah was going to be in town. So we just met up for the first time. I think we hadn't been in the same room probably since my wedding or something, which was like 2007 or something. Mm-hmm. And it was a nice time. And we took band photos and things like that. And we had gotten a, an offer. Jim had gotten an offer from Dante at the Black Cat asking us if we wanted to do that. And I think we all went into this meeting probably figuring it was not likely to happen. And we sort of just went around the table. And I think various people called the other people's bluffs as it went around. And by the end of the evening, it's like we were ready to accept that. And and I still didn't, I mean, I didn't have any idea that it was going to be received the way it was or anything, like the news that we were doing it or the performance itself. So it was still a very like, like this is these are people in our mid 50s reforming our band i mean it's kind of pathetic on some level <laughs> you know I, you know like like i'm talk, talking about just us that night or whatever where, you know it, it was really fun seeing everybody but it also felt kind of like hey we're getting the band together we're going to post uh, <laughs> we're going to post a photo of it tomorrow on social media and from there on it started you started seeing glimpses of people being happy about that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so Sarah, I got to ask you this question. So tell us about the 
process of now knowing that you're going to be on stage, what kind of homework did you have to do to retrain? Uh, I'm going to well, have to mute my uh, mic from so I don't laugh the whole time. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> so I was very ill-prepared because I hadn't listened to this stuff in a decade. You know, I had really... I think when it when it had come up, the most recent was with my kids. They're like, Mom, is this you? And and yeah, so I was extremely ill-prepared. Ill and even in that first practice, when I had crammed on the airplane, I was very ill-prepared. But they, and, you know, laughed at for not knowing anything rightly so. But they these guys brought me up to speed and they, they had obviously been working on their chops and I was like, okay, you got to get it together. And I was a little bit worried about my vocal range because I, I sing pretty high on uh, copacetic and simpatico. And I was worried about a couple of the songs that we were definitely going to, going to sing. And I just started vocalizing every day just warming my vocals up and I found that it's just like, like exercising the muscles came back. And I won't say that it's, you know, where it was in the nineties, but I, I found them for the performance. I think, I think they were there as strong as they could be. Well, I've seen some of the YouTube clips and Jim was telling me about when we had our pre event conversation that he was super impressed and in the YouTube clips, obviously I wasn't there, but it gives me a nice snapshot and a glimpse into that experience. Jim, so what was that experience like just being back on the stage with the band? And I'm sure ravenous fans waiting for you. Ravenous. I, I, I you know, one of the things that I'm glad, very glad of now sitting here right now is when we decided to do this back in June or whenever it was, we decided we were going to do it. We, we, we said that we were going to, kind of take it seriously. We were going to, you know, practice. We were going to make sure the guitar sounds were right and all of this, you know, and really, and I think that really paid off because we practiced kind of a lot, you know, for relatively speaking. And so I felt pretty good musically. It was definitely surreal a little bit. And I think my favorite little personal moment while, while, you know, I was, I was kind of just in my own thing, like, I, I don't want to fuck up. Don't let me be the one that fucks up, you know? And, but at the end of my forgotten favorite, Sarah used to do this thing on stage where she would come back to the drum kit and grab a stick and, and, and hit the opposite symbol of me for the last four or whatever things. And I had forgotten that. And she came over to the drum kit at the end of that song. And it made me just so happy also partly okay i already made it through the hardest song for me to play so <laughs> it made me really happy to see her there and that that's really when i i i kind of relaxed but then the real impact hit me when i i looked up and you know and saw all these people and people were just really seemed genuinely involved in it and seemed to be appreciating it and it was really humbling i would say you know to do it and then on the way on the way home that night, I had three friends from out of town. My daughter's with me, and it was like all the stuff going on. And my daughter was like showing me like Instagram yeah. clips. 
And I was like, oh my God, like Sarah's like, <laughs> and, and, and there's one where there's one and it's an iPhone from five feet away, but I'm like, oh my God, Archie's guitar sounds phenomenal, you know? And I just was like, oh my God, I can't, I'm so glad that it all, that we decided to do it and to be a part of it. It, it was, I'm still almost processing it a week later because it was just this cathartic kind of really wonderful experience. It gave me so much appreciation for the other four people in the band, you know, that I probably have not taken enough time to be appreciative of, you know, back in the day. It just was a really beautiful experience. So the next two shows will probably fucking suck, but (laughs) but it was just really wonderful. I don't think so. Archie, what what are your thoughts from that experience? Well, I think the, the thing that Jim was getting at about Sarah was that <laughs> Sarah, like I, I had, and this is something that I, I made a point. I was explaining it to people who hadn't seen us before, like my kid and stuff like that. I was like, Sarah never did that before. Literally like, like, like she, she stalked the stage and she, she held her hand above her head and she held, she held the fucking straight stand up into the air and, stuff, and she took the mic off and things like that. So it, that was a blast because I got the impression and t- correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like a very joyful performance. <laughs> like it seemed like you were really, really feeling the love and working from it. And I was from where I was all, and this is me all the time. All I was hearing was my mistakes and things like that. Oh no. But, but then like when I, I mean, I had the same experience with Jim, like on the way home, I was checking out social media and I, I think I'm just lucky uh, for several reasons. I think Sarah and I are both lucky that nowadays they've figured out how to like the videographers come to the front center of the stage <laughs> because I'm a guitar player on the stage, right? I have the cool angle where my headstock is pointing towards the camera yeah. and my amp, my amp. So their, their camera is pointed at me and my amps and it's picking up the sound of the amp. Like it just sounded really i'm like my guitar sound is really good i cannot believe this i also i mean it's really a massively different phenomenon all three of us have played in in you know bands to different degrees since since then you know but it is a massively different experience to have to then like minutes later have people in the front row with wide angle lens video cameras capturing every every moment it's it it was been it's been really great to be able to watch all those clips and and be there because i'm the one person for sure the drummer that never gets that view i just see everyone (laughs) you know and it was really great to be able to experience that through those people's cameras what an inspiring moment what an elevated moment like seeing all that and then plus you you couple that with the audience reaction what a what a great experience so i understand you have another show or two coming up Yeah, we're going to play at the Bowery Ballroom on September 30th. And from what it, I mean, I don't know. I I went online and I I don't want to say it out loud, actually. (laughs) Oh, somebody else. I don't know. We're hoping it's sold out because we were were really concerned about it, but we think it may have sold out. So, and I've already, of course, got five messages. That might be my kid. It sold out. I'll be right back. Uh oh. the Bowery. Uh, come in the, come on in. So, and then you have another one after that in de- December. 
December 2nd, we'll be back at the Black Cat. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I wanted to say something super quick about the kind of uh, my energy performing. Because I, I want, I'm not a super confident performer. And I, I've spent the past 10 years, no, 15 years doing children's music, <laughs> a full rock band, you know, fully amplified, but we play for children. So I think, uh, number one, I'm just going to be brutally honest. I learned how to not drink before shows so i used to just <laughs> have a couple glasses of wine to calm me down and that's very unseemly to do <laughs> with children but also it's just kind of you know yeah. something that i'm working on myself so i learned i kind of overcame my nervousness by moving around a lot and i found that that kind of took took the edge off but then i just sort of started leading with that when I when I was performing for kids and I was like, well, fuck it. I'll just do it. I was so nervous. <laughs> and I was like, I'll just do it here. I mean, it's not gonna hurt anybody if I'm if I'm moving around and and then the audience was just right there. And it's like when I was gonna you, say the audience probably picked up down there in seconds. Yeah. And it's like when you're if if you're performing and it's getting feedback from the audience and I could I could feel I could feel the band, you know, they weren't saying anything to me. They said something to me afterwards, but I could feel I could feel the connection with them. And I was like, okay, we're going to go ahead and I'm going to go ahead and lean into this. And it was it was the it was the band up there with me. It was the, the, the fact that I think they had they were sounding better than ever. And yeah, they just it, it just wanted the, the words are also cheesy. You know, it's just like I, I felt complete joy. I felt complete, like the audience was holding me. It was really an uplifting, connecting experience. I love when you just said leaning into that. I used to tell my students all the time we do a lot of performance based activities to immerse themselves in the academics. And I would say, okay, you're going to feel that moment on stage where you're going to feel that connection, lean into it. And they would say, well, Mr. Frederick, when is that? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know when it's going to happen for you. And if it doesn't, that's okay. But if it does, embrace it and go right right towards it. That's wonderful. Okay, we're going to wrap this up with a few more topics here. I want to talk about this stuff that you re released on Bandcamp. <laughs> this AVA version of my forgotten favorite, Warm Crawl. Jim, I mentioned you. I love that mix there. This massive undertaking of going back through the analog tapes and really re exploring all that stuff again. Whose idea was that and who's really taken charge of that one? <laughs> well, I think we'd all had ideas about, well, well, we haven't mentioned in the interview yet, but we, the, the cat's out of the bag. We, we've, we're in the finishing processes of remixing our first album, Copacetic. And that's what kind of, I think that's something we'd all maybe individually and probably brought it up with each other before mentioned the idea of oh i wish i wish we could do that and um, when this these show ideas came up i think in the very first email the very first band mail band email it was like a two-part thing where i'm like okay uh we've been asked if we want to do this dc punk rock thing and also i think what would you all think about looking for our master tapes for copacetic and seeing if we can 
get them transferred and do a remix of it and see if somebody would put that out. And right off the bat, everybody was like, yes, on remix. And in the process of that, it was, I mean, this was the beginning of an emotional roller coaster that we we won't go into the whole thing just because I know we're taking up too much time or anything, but it was probably six weeks of us. It, would you say six weeks, Jim, maybe of us look like we tracked down a bunch of tapes right off the bat. And those were very exciting because it turns out we had analog masters of our first singles and things like that. We had sent DATs, these crappy sounding 16-bit tapes. That's what we had sent to the recording plant. But we were making mixed down quarter inch backups at the same time. And we found the multi-track reel with the individual instruments and everything for our first recording sessions. The sad part is we apparently recorded over the multi-track reel for our most well-known single, the forgotten favorite. So that one, you know, we, we, we found the mixed down tape, but we don't have the multi-track for that, but we found all this great stuff. And we're like, none of this stuff has been on streaming. Like we had, we had a Slumberland compilation in the nineties on CD that compiled it but it's never been on streaming. And here we have superior sounding master tapes of the same material plus other stuff. We we have to do something with that. So that's, we sort of got the ball rolling on that while we were still hunting down the multi-track tapes for Copacetic, which we asked Subhop to find it. And they, when they eventually got back to us, they said, we've looked in our storage facilities and we don't have them. And I just assumed Knowing all of us, I just assumed somebody of the band like threw it out or lost, you know, like we've all had changes of, we've all lived in different homes and things like that, had different, lived with different partners and things like that. And there's just so many variables involved. I thought, I thought they were gone forever and Jim came through with it. And yeah, I, I, I'm sending all these messages to the band saying, you got to look, man, maybe it's here, maybe it's there. And they were in my, my ex-wife's mom's house my former mother-in-law's house the whole time where i had sort of outsmarted myself because i remember then you know whatever years ago going they'll be safe here they, they will be safe and stable and dry and and well preserved here versus me i'd moved to denver for a while and around and stuff and so just it worked out but i'm still embarrassed that it took me so long oh. to remember <laughs> i i you, you didn't it's whatever you say that I just keep thinking, oh my God, I almost cried when Jim sent me the, uh, when he sent me the photo <laughs> where he said, he sent me a, a preliminary text that said, Hey buddy, or something like that. And then the next one was a photo of two inch tapes. Like it was, it was like, uh, I, like my heart exploded when I saw it. I couldn't believe it. It's, it's funny when I went on to band camp and I was, I was, have you read people's reactions to some on of these camp? Actually, uh, I'm not oh, sure I, I have. Yeah, yeah, I did. yeah. So setting the night on fire with rock and roll. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> people have written really nice things, like you know, what a great surprise! Thank you from blah blah blah. My favorite, my forgotten favorite, has always been one of my favorite songs. I listen to new version over and over. This mix really lets Sarah's vocals shine. Blah blah blah. Really nice comments. I I imagine what a what a so okay so. How long are we going to go and do this for? This sounds like a Fugazi thing to me because you know Fugazi used to go back and do all this stuff and bring back their demos. Is that kind of the route we're going? Well, I, I, we don't have as much material as Fugazi, do we? Yeah, yeah. So, so right now, I mean, there's that that batch of stuff that came out, and then 
we're going to do a greatly expanded like twice as many songs i think something like that a uh, version of that rock the slumberland compilation with the rocket ship on the cover but th- that covers most of it on probably most that probably yeah. covers all the releasable stuff like so between that that ep that ep was meant just sort of as like a a taster like our dipping our toes in the water letting people yeah. learn that we've found some tapes and things like that but basically there'll be two big projects hopefully coming out in a reasonable amount of time one the the slumberland compilation and then we i mean we have a, a new stereo mix of copacetic and kind of bonus tracks that were contemporary contemporaneous b-sides outtake sub pop single of the month that kind of thing and it's all been remixed and it's been i think basically i think it's been remixed with more of the idea of what we you were mentioning the flying nun stuff yeah for for our first record i think i love that that stuff but also all of the nascent shoegazing stuff of the you know we were we were all huge fans of ride i loved pale saints in ribbons had come out less than a year before that and stuff like the charlottes and the wedding present sea monsters i remember that was a big van favorite on our early tours that's the kind of i always thought we were going to make kind of a british sounding first album and i think the songs were very conducive to that thing and i think that's what this is going to sound like if people hear it like uh, that that's the vibe that i was pushing for you say the wedding present i'm there (laughs) yeah they they, they were probably our band favorite at the time yeah, what what I really like about the remixes, and and to be clear, Archie remixed all of this stuff. This has really been his his labor here that is coming to fruition. But I like the way the remixes though still sound like the band from that era. They don't sound like you know we got Pink's production team to kind of redo it or anything like that. It's it's trying to find this alternate history of if the recording sessions had maybe just kind of gone a different way, you know, if our headspace had been different with the same material, but in, in that time period and not, not something that the record was not meant to be. I, yeah. I, I, I would agree. Real, yeah. Real quick. It's funny. I don't want to use this term because it's so awkward, but it's like <laughs> a mul- it's a multiverse version of yes. the first velocity girl album is what it is. Like it's the, uh, yeah. That's a great because it's the same and yet it's different. It's it's right? hard to explain. Like you when you'll know it when you hear it. You'll say, "Oh it's yeah, that's everything bagel." Yes. So Sarah, Sarah, I gotta ask. Then have you listened to some of the? Oh <laughs> yeah, no. I, I, frankly, yeah. so uh, Archie, we were Archie's been working his ass off. Like you know, he's got a he's got a job and he's doing this on his off time and. We got a strongly worded text saying because we he's been giving play you know sending us tracks daily and or very often and there was a period when we weren't really getting back to him and he's like guys bad asshole (laughs) yeah yeah right no but I think it's completely appropriate so yeah we've been listening as as they've been progressing that's one was that the question yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah sure sure well like i said if you if you haven't seen the band camp reactions from your fans it, it's good stuff okay we're gonna wrap it up 
with vinyl picks. So this is where the artist gets to, the band gets to share albums that they recommend either on vinyl, CDs, eight track, cassette, whatever you want. So you're going to get a chance. If you have a couple, you can do them all in a row and we'll just go from one person next and just hold up your album. Um, this was mine. I, I'm a big fan of the church and this is their latest and greatest that came out a couple months ago. And I just heard they're going to have another album. That's kind of the, the brother to this one. So super excited for that. So if you just want to hold up and share what inspires you about the album, that's it. So Jim, do you want to go first? Sure. I, I once spent about nearly a year trying to grow my hair out to look like Marty Wilson Piper. And I had <laughs> earrings and I kind of dyed it burgundy and it, it didn't really, didn't really work, but I like the church too. Okay. So I'm not sure if this is exactly a recommendation. So, but my, so I, the first one I chose is Kiss Alive 2 because this was the first album I bought along with that Beach Boys thing I mentioned. And it's kind of a crappy record. I mean, even as a Kiss fan, it's really not, I don't think that great, but it's maybe the best still record presentation, this amazing gatefold thing of their stage and these photos on the back, like a gene there. So uh-huh. it's a really important record to me. And I bet you there's an infinity number of people in bands relatively our age that had some <laughs> record played a huge, huge part in it. I, and that record real quick, that record, like that record was the first album I ever owned. And it set a high bar because it came with a fucking book inside of it and tattoos. What else? Was there anything else, Jim? The like, doll? Uh, Did it come with the doll? That was Love Gun. Yeah. I th- or, uh, or yeah, like I mean, the, the paper like- doll. Or yeah, or what was none of that stuff has survived, but all of that stuff was amazing. And I've always felt like like uh, like the perfect record packaging takes you as long as it takes to listen to the record to read all the liner notes and all that stuff. And also there's this boring stuff you do when you're a songwriter where you join generally either the ASCAP or BMI, these two organizations. And these songs on on here are ASCAP. So I think that Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons were ASCAP writers. And I always remembered that because I didn't know what it meant. But then when we just when we had to do that, I remember going, let's do ASCAP because that's what's on Kiss Alive too. <laughs> uh, so that and then the next record was is an obvious one, but the Ramones first record, which was played for me by this guy Brian Gallo. There's a handful of records, band photos that I've just studied for you know, and you can look at this this photo absolutely forever from from Tommy's Cub Scout belt, you know, and their weird kids and johnny's finger like this in his in his pants it's really incredible and the record literally i mean completely changed the course of my life hearing this record this like metal and all that stuff became irrelevant hendrix and classic rock i put all that stuff aside that i was hearing on the radio and just dove right in you know to this and it's still an absolutely incredible record especially now i like all the weird foreign policy rock on the second (laughs) and today your love tomorrow the world the sort of like (laughs) nazi song and stuff it's great and then the last record is just the most recent record i bought which is untenable by bad moves we played with them the other night they They were great i also ordered their record before this which has this incredible song called spirit fm that has been my jam of the week so i encourage anyone to go and check that out i bought these both 
the other one hasn't arrived yet. I don't know why they came separately, but it's on Don Giovanni and they're a great band. And so from the beginning until this week, there you go. Thank you so much. All right, Archie. Yeah. So I, I, I wasn't sure what the criteria was. So I just picked three recent obsessions of mine, sure. uh, which are some of it is old music, but it's what I've been obsessing over recently. So just got the Sacred Bones reissue of the first Julie Cruz record, which was a record I absolutely loved when it came out. And I stopped listening to it for a few decades, sold the vinyl, kept the CD, I think, and somehow started listening to it again a few months ago. And it's one of those records that as much as I loved it when it came out, I love it more now. It sounds more perfect to me. So Julie Cruz floating. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Yeah, that was a, yep. a very sad thing. And then I think this fella, Jason Quever, might be from, might be Bay Area. It's either Bay Area. He's Bay Area, yeah. Yeah. The last Paper Cuts album, Past Life Regression on Slumberland. I love this record. I love the one before it, too. I need to kind of get caught up on his previous records. I think he had like sub, a Sub Pop album and some other things. But this is by far the one that I love the most. It has songs that sound like they could be on the kinks village green or there's or or the who sell out it's just really perfect but it, it's like the kinks village green or who sell out if they listen to echo and the bunny men too it's it's a really cool vibe and if i'm fun. not mis- if i'm not mistaken sorry archie huh? uh, i believe he filled in he did some music with dean wareham from he did that 10 inch i think it's called emancipated hearts maybe yeah yeah and he did some touring with him he filled in yeah. so yeah that's a great it seems like a super talented guy and yeah. then finally I, I got this uh blue rash i've been buying up these there's a guy named stephen wilson who i guess is the porcupine tree a prog guy i'm not really into his music with porcupine tree but it seems mm. like every everything else he's ever done is really intriguing to me where he he for a while i think got together with all of the surviving members of japan except for david sylvian and he was in a band with them but anyway he somehow got the gig to remix like the XTC albums. And this is the Dukes of Stratosphere remixed nice. for surround sound and, but also for stereo. I, I haven't even listened to, I don't have anything to listen to the surround on, but the stereo remix of this and Skylarking and Black Sea by XTC are just fantastic, um, which is high praise because those were notoriously great sounding records to begin with. So. That guy's created his whole own like demimond around his, around all of his endeavors. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's doing like new wave remixes. He's he just did X ABC, the Lexicon of Love. He just remixed nice. that. Very nice. Yeah, and XTC Andy Partridge has been all over YouTube because he he's not well he's not known for doing interviews, but now he's been sharing a lot more of his interesting. Kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah hmm. check it out. There's there's, really there's a fun. It might have been made for Showtime. There's a fun XTC documentary that I think was one of the first fruits of his kind of becoming it, friendly it, and talking to people again. It's weird how Stephen Wilson has all of that stuff you just described. And then probably the bulk of his fan base are also into like Tool and Dream Theater or something like. I, really yeah, weird. I, I think I, I think of Porcupine Tree as like a cooler Dream Theater or something like a British oh. Dream Theater or something. But neither is really my bag. So come on, man. Believe uh, it or not, Sarah, we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up with you. What do you what goodies do you? Right on. Well, I'm gonna go back to my childhood and the stuff that I was deep in. That you know, before 
you know, I knew what my nose on my face was. My, my parents probably had the full, between my mom and my dad, had the full mm. Bowie catalog. Oh, that, my ring light is kind of. So I remember, you know, and, and at the time I was really little and, you know, he was such a prolific artist. I remember being so sort of shocked by him visually and a little confused <laughs> and just sitting there with the records out and looking at him and, you know, asking, is that a boy or a girl? And also like his first records confused the hell out of me. I was like, why is this, why is he singing like an elf? <laughs> but I just, those. <laughs> a gnome, so, Sarah, a gnome. A gnome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but. Yeah, so I had all of these, and obviously his voice is is everything. And he was, you know, he was still making music. Like, you know, I had MTV, and he was he was all over MTV. Yeah, I mean, just yeah, obviously heroes like murders my heart in the best way. Yeah, so That'd another be the one, best this- song ever, heroes. It's passage. It's pretty close. Yeah. And then this is another kind of obvious childhood one, but we had we had all the Beatles records and you know this one I just played constantly because it was like the song the songs were just such perfect pop songs and then you have this weird ass song at the end where he's the whoever wrote it was it McCartney or, or Lennon where he's threatening to murder his girlfriend. Oh, <laughs> Lennon I run, run and for I, your you life. Know, at the, <laughs> when I was little, I was just like, oh, whatever, run for your life. You know, I didn't even. Right, know right, right. But it, in hindsight, I'm like, oh, yeah, that would not fly. <laughs> and then this is probably the first record I ever bought on my own. Oh, uh, yeah. And it's just Purple Rain. I mean, what can I say? The whole package. He was beautiful, his voice was beautiful. He could dance. He was in the movies. He made his own movies. My sister won tickets to see him on the Purple Rain tour. Uh, so I went to see him. And yeah, it's one of those albums that literally just has the full gamut. I mean, it's like, I mean, and also, if I remember too, that came out at a time where MTV, it's just everything uncorked. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and he and he had the whole package, and he was producing his own stuff, and he was just this weird, beautiful little man, and he had a beautiful voice. Do enormous thing at that time. Yeah. Do you remember? Uh, sir? good. I was just going to say I, that, and whenever someone holds a Prince album up, the first thing now I think of is Sinead O'Connor and her experience. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've read about that. Oh goodness. <laughs> Oh, good stuff. I think that was a kind of converging of some some interesting personalities. Yeah, some egos involved, all that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anything else? You anything else you want to plug before we wrap this up? Plug. Gosh. Ooh. I'm gonna do a new Sarah Shannon record. I'm working on it right now. Those are the songs. Oh, look. The Those are the songs there. right there. Okay. Can you see them? Yeah. yeah. Can't yeah. see the titles, but oh. I yeah. So, but that's yeah. That's that's a little bit on the back burner now, which is perfectly fine. Velocity Girl, 
Thank you so much, Jim Spellman, Archie Moore, Sarah Shannon. This has been a wonderful pleasure retracing some steps, getting familiar with the, the where we're going forward with the band, these analog tapes being dusted off, all that. Awesome. Thank you so much to all three of you. I really, really appreciate it.